Hey, Alex, I said no peeking. I said keep your eyes shut until we arrive. Sorry, my nose was itching. Why did you pack us into this little telephone booth? And is it just me or is it getting hotter in here? Should we be concerned about that rattling noise? It's fine. I told my husband that we'd be back in time for dinner, so I'm really hoping this doesn't take too much longer. Don't worry, guys. Time, as you'll find out, is something we have in abundance. ASB gang, this isn't just any telephone booth. Yes, you guessed it. It's a time machine. And we've just arrived in the year 2033. Bad news, it's about three-tenths of a degree hotter than 2023. Oh, that's not that bad. Degrees Celsius. Oh, then that is that bad. Wait, Will, where did you find a TARDIS? Ah, uh, the BBC had a surplus prop rental the other day, so it's fine. I just have to return it tomorrow, or yesterday. Well, anyhow, the good news in 2033 is that global carbon emissions have just about peaked, and electric vehicles are 50% of the market, so things are looking up. That's super fascinating. I would love to have an electric vehicle, but um, I'm actually really dying to know what's happening in astronomy. What are the biggest achievements from the last 10 years? Did satellites or Starlink ruin the night sky? Have we discovered life on Mars or on some distant exoplanet? Did AI replace our advisors or grad students or both? Oh, just follow me and all your questions will be answered. You're never going to believe the exoplanet that was just discovered a few months ago. Its atmosphere is full of water, and we've detected Sabrina. Sabrina? Sabrina? Hey, we're about to record. You okay? Uh, yeah, sorry guys. I'm a little out of it because I just woke up from the weirdest dream. I'll tell you about it after we record the episode. Is that okay? Whatever you say. Every day, the graduate student writers of astrobytes.org publish summaries of recent developments in astronomy. Then we sit down with recent astrobytes of our choosing and bring them together, sometimes in ways you wouldn't expect. We call it Astro Soundbites. I'm Will Saunders. I'm a fifth-year PhD student at Boston University, where I study the upper atmospheres of Uranus and Neptune. I'm Sabrina Berger. I'm a PhD student at the University of Melbourne. I'm going to be honoring the Australian accent in these episodes. Melbourne. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> Melbourne, Melbourne, Melbourne. <laughs> and I study the high redshift universe, both observationally and theoretically. I'm Alex Galliano. I'm a fifth-year PhD student at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. And... That's <laughs> 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 good. <laughs> and I study supernovae and the galaxies they come from. And I'm Kirsten Boley. I'm a PhD candidate at The Ohio State University, where I study the impact of elemental abundances on planet formation and evolution. You're listening to Episode 69, Astronomy 10 Years into the Future, Part 1. If you guys don't mind, I'm going to start off this episode with a little soliloquy. Who's surprised? <laughs> Over the past few months, one of the topics I've gotten excited about is futurism, sometimes called futurology, though I don't like that term. Futurism, which is not to be confused with an art movement of the same name, is the study of social and societal forces shaping the future. So it's really about predicting what will happen and how people will be able to react so you can prepare for the future. As you can imagine, a lot of people have a vested interest in knowing what's going to happen in the future. I've read two books about this field. The first was called Super Forecasting by Philip Tetlock and Dan Gardner, and the second is called Imaginable by Jane McGonigal. Super Forecasting is about what the authors learned from running a series of scientific studies about predicting specific things about the future. And what they found is that some of the participants in their study were consistently really good at predicting the future. So the book teaches you how to break down problems, avoid groupthink, quantify uncertainty, calibrate bias, among other things, to be able to make 
better predictions. Some of these are weirdly specific. Like, what is the prediction that NATO will grow in the next five years? How would you be able to answer that problem? This book will teach you how to do it. Imaginable is a little different. It's about how you can open your mind to possible futures. So you can imagine them instead of having them be unimaginable and then prepare yourself for them. So it's a little more psychological. And for instance, it teaches you how to envision a future 10 years away. And so that unimaginable idea of something that might happen actually once you envision it becomes something your brain is now wired to understand. One of the examples given is 10 years in the future, the U.S. president has to shut down the internet for weeks at a time due to cybersecurity concerns. Or another example is one out of four people in the U.S. has a meat allergy due to a tick-borne illness. These are not unreasonable predictions. Are they likely? Probably not, but things we could think about and prepare ourselves for. And this entire idea was born out of Jane McGonigal's effective prediction of COVID over 10 years before it happened. She basically got a group of people together, created a pandemic scenario for them to practice, which was exactly how COVID went down. And all of those people did really well during the pandemic because they had already essentially lived through it. Anyway, both of these books are inspiration for this episode, but I really like the 10-year time trip. So that's what motivated me to come up with this idea for a two-part episode series, and we're going to talk about the future. So what will astronomy be like in 2033? What unimaginable things become imaginable over 10 years? What trends will accelerate? We're not going to be right about all of it or maybe any of it, but if we open up our brains and start to get the juices flowing about the future, we can maybe start to take the steps to making it a little bit brighter. And here's the coolest part of this episode. We went out and got 14 other astronomers from around the world to make predictions about 2033. So you can look forward to hearing those peppered throughout this episode. The plan is to start this episode close to home, talking about the culture of astronomy in our profession, and then move gradually farther and farther away from the solar system to cosmology. So, to astronomers worldwide, we posed the question, what will the field look like in a decade? The first set of predictions is more general, discussing big trends in astronomy or what life will be like as an astronomer in 10 years. So we're first going to hear from Kristen Larson, a professor at Northwestern University. Also, I want to add a quick disclaimer before we hear these clips. We recorded all of these 14 clips at conferences and around the office, so the audio quality isn't the best, and there may be background noise, but it's worth it, we promise. If somebody had asked me this question 10 years ago, or 20 years ago, I would not have been able to predict. And I'll give you an example. So I'm, I'm over 50, so I have a long view here. I remember when anything about planets was at the end of the journals, okay? We're like squished into like the Thursday sessions at the AAS. And now, there's so much research about planets. It's in, you know, the first day sessions. It's at the beginning of the journals. It's where people are doing their work. And I couldn't, I wouldn't have been able to predict that. Like I haven't, I wouldn't have known, you know, I thought my career started when we maybe knew of a couple extrasolar planets and it's changed really quickly. So I think it's hard to say, um, you know, what the science results are going to be. But I think I can say what I think is going to be happening in terms of how we do science. Just wandering around in these posters, there are no, there's very little data anymore that's the kind I got my PhD thesis on, which was 100 stars and four magnitudes. So it was 400 numbers that fit neatly on an eight and a half by 11 sheet of paper. I think that's done. I think those days are gone. And I think that, I think that all of this research now uses some big computational power, some advanced computational methods, and I think that even holdouts who've said, look, I really don't want to learn how to use AstroPy. I'm a huge AstroPy fan. I got to get a button. Uh, but I think that, that folks who like, I don't really want to learn machine learning. I don't really want to know this. I think are going to, are, are, are scrambling now to learn because this is the big data piece and we can't just comb through it by hand. And the ways we've done things before aren't 
going to work anymore. And, and some of these big data sets, there's still a lot of science still embedded in them from, you know, 10 years ago even. There's still, you know, people are still getting science out of two mass. And, and it happens because of people's ability to, to do data engineering and data science and the analysis and the machine learning piece. So I think that, I think that computer science and astronomy are gonna continue to get closer and closer together and there's a lot more weaving in between them. So that's what I think it's gonna look like. I think people are gonna be showing their favorite machine learning algorithms in every session in 10 years. One of the things I really like about this clip you got, Kirsten, is that she touches on just about everything that's happening exciting in the field. Machine learning, big data, the nature of the field, but also the fact that astronomers always work right at the bleeding edge. We want to be right at the signal to noise cutoff. How can we get, you know, blood from the stone? And though she didn't make a specific prediction, I think all of these are really solid ones. I absolutely loved talking with her. We talked even longer than this clip was about this idea of, you know, more machine learning and what they would have thought, you know, when they first started their career versus where the field is now. That was just super interesting. She was amazing to talk to. I also think she takes a really kind view of machine learning. I don't know. I've heard mm -hmm. a lot of professors talk about machine learning in much more negative light. Like it's just too black boxy. But she kind of was like, you know what? Like we need to try this. And I mean, I think that's the opinion I hold too is it's just so powerful. And maybe we won't be able to understand all of the intricacies all the time, but it still helps us do powerful, exciting research. That is just a great segue into the next clip. <laughs> <laughs> the next person that I spoke with was Chris Mijos, and he's a professor at Case Western. For me, one of the things that I see coming, I mean, it's largely already here, but it'll be in 10 years fixed, uh, is going to be that as astronomers, we are not going to be using the telescopes, right? That, that, I mean, we will be using the data, but we are already moving to a world where astronomers don't go to telescopes, right? So much of our data is coming from, you know, space-based instruments or instruments that are so remote. The idea that you go to the telescope or that you are, a, you are an expert in the instrument, even though you're not at the telescope, I think we're going to be doing a lot more mail-order data. So we really need to make sure that People understand how the data is taken. I see a lot of people starting today without a good appreciation of what goes into taking the data. And so when you trust the data a little too much, you get into trouble. I think as all this data comes in, we really have to be careful about data quality and making sure that the people who are using the data understand how it was taken and the, the pros and cons of different aspects of the data because I think there's going to be so much data coming in that we can't individually examine each piece. We just sort of have to trust the data set and I worry about too much trust of data that you haven't taken yourself. So I think there's going to be a lot of conversations about data quality and how to ensure that the end users really are using the data appropriately for their science. I really think this is both a concrete prediction and totally plausible that all ground-based telescopes, especially the big ones, are going to operate like the space-based ones. You send in your operation instructions and you get the data back. Yeah, I loved this prophecy. It also reminded me of Julianne Delcanton, the head of the Center for Computational Astrophysics, recalled at one point the paradigm shift that the Sloan Digital Sky Survey represented in people had to learn SQL queries to just get, grab like chunks of the data from some central repository and download it as opposed to downloading all of the data that was available and mm. analyzing it on your local system. And now with the Rubin Observatory that's going to come online in 2025, we won't be able to download a chunk of it. I think we'll have to do most <laughs> of our processing remotely and then have to download like our insights from it. So it's just interesting how that processing is changing and how we're gathering data from these massive, massive uh, endeavors. 
just with the data that I'm using, it's really interesting because I felt a little bit called out here because, <laughs> <laughs> because most of the data that I'm using is from test. I'm not over there observing with tests. So I felt like it was really good to think about just for me, like, do I understand what the pros and cons of this data is and what's the proper way to use this? Because I've had a lot of discussions as well, just with my own research, where people might suggest some things and I'm like, oh, wait, we can't do that because we can't do that to this data and whatnot. Mm. So I think that it's really appropriate. You're like listening to this interview on repeat as you're reducing yeah. your data. <laughs> like it's a mantra. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but I, I also like how you captured some excitement about mm -hmm. the new possibilities, but also caution. And that's how we should approach the future. Excited, but cautious. <laughs> so this takes us to our next clip. I sat down with Connor O'Brien, who's a grad student at Boston University and is also gonna give us some thoughts about the state of the field in 10 years. Within the next 10 years, I think that there's going to be some kind of bursting in the bubble. Of, well, not necessarily the bubble, but like a change in the publishing and journal pipeline that exists in academia today, shifting away from the publish at high volume at all costs model of career development and measurement as a scientist and moving towards something hopefully a little more distributed reproducible and focused in that way. Do you think that it will be more like data products that are delivered and available and that will count as a publication in the eyes of people hiring? Yeah, data products, reproducible code being made available. I mean, the tools are all there and a lot of fields are moving towards this, but I think that it's just a cultural shift that we need to make in astronomy. You, you can already sort of see it happening. You talk about the quantity versus quality, right? Yeah. Now, it's really hard to say which paper is better than others, and impact factors and citations take a long time. What about the use of AI to calibrate how impactful a publication is, or your publication record is? I think that the content-informed AI frameworks are not developed enough to do that in a reliable manner that wouldn't but just be years? automating the... I I have doubts about the actual underlying mathematics. <laughs> I don't think the underlying mathematics are capable of representing that right now instead of just learning the noise. I could look like an absolute idiot for this prediction, but I'm, I'm a deep AI skeptic. I don't think that that's what's going to happen in 10 years. I think what's more likely is it's going to be a culture shift around what peer review looks like. I really appreciate the healthy skepticism in AI. I think that using AI to evaluate publishing success or impact on the field is exactly the type of subjective analysis that could be attempted to be outsourced to something like machine learning, and then it would become black box enough that people would trust it regardless of inherent biases that are baked into the data set that we use to train it. So I could see it causing tons of problems. Yeah, I think that that would totally cause problems. He was mentioning a shift in how we value research because I do think that going in line with the other predictions when we think about these larger data sets we think about more computation time which means that you can't publish as quickly so that seems completely plausible yeah it's hard to to value a publication when you have collaborations that require years to build the pipeline and collect the data versus people who can churn out theory papers year after year. Was what you were asking him sort of, could deep learning make predictions about publication impact, basically? Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. I feel like that would honestly make a lot of problems in astronomy. I mean, there's yeah. so many biases because of the training data that these deep learning algorithms use. So... I don't know. I feel like it would just start to learn our biases. We need to be less biased before that happens. I was reading some AI thing that already started to show because it aggregates what it's learning on the internet, mm -hmm. already showing some bias <laughs> just from what people are saying. So you're probably right, Sabrina. <laughs> yeah. So on a lighter note, <laughs> we'll end this segment with a PhD student at the University of Melbourne, Stephanie Bernard, who will tell us not only about her takes on the future of astronomy, but also the future of outreach. 
shout out to Stephanie's podcast, the Spaghettification Podcast, which is a public astronomy outreach podcast here in Australia. Maybe Astro Soundbites will collaborate with them down the line. Mm. Heck yeah. Podcast pals. If someone asked me where do I think that astronomy is going in the next 10 years, I would definitely say that the James Webb Space Telescope is already producing sort of groundbreaking results, even only uh, a year into operations, <laughs> I think now. And I think it's like with Hubble, where Hubble was launched in 1990 and just opened up so many new areas of astrophysics that people who were writing the proposals, you know, when it was being launched, just had no idea would even exist. And I think James Webb has the, the possibility of doing something similar where it's just such a high resolution instrument that it's I think it's going to be able to find things that we had no clue were out there especially in the early universe which is sort of a regime where our view so far has been really limited by technology <laughs> um, people in the last five to ten years have really tried to push Hubble as far as it can go and made lots of amazing discoveries but I think with James Webb where this is no longer the frontier, this is really just the beginning. <laughs> it's going to be something really incredible, what we're going to see from it. And James Webb, of course, its mission lifetime is around 10 years. And so, you know, if you ask me in 2033 <laughs> what what um, astronomy has, uh, how it's changed over the last 10 years, I think, you know, that would be a great time to sort of reassess <laughs> everything that James Webb has been able to do. Um, of course, though, James Webb is not everything in astronomy, as much as some of us think it is. And I think it's really an amazing time for things like smaller telescopes. Um, I was talking to a friend yesterday who works in exoplanets about some of these smaller telescopes that you can use that are funded by privately owned sort of companies or um, um, private benefactors. And those sorts of things, they still have their place in astronomy. And I think especially things that give you more access to the sky are really going to help to open up some of those fields as well, especially things where having control over the telescope is really useful because, you know, you might have some very tight timing and be able to um, be able to just point it whenever you need it. It's really good. I really hope that um, with COVID, we can't say it's over, of yeah. course, but sort of on the decline, um, getting those opportunities up for people just everywhere to be able to look at the sky, either from their local amateur astronomy club or, you know, institutions that are focused on research are hopefully going to really just give people um, more appreciation of the sky that we sort of lost over the last hundred years of industrialization and light pollution. Um, definitely here in Australia there's a big push for re-establishing sort of sky brightness limits, you know, looking into how do we reduce the light that our cities make at night. At Melbourne Uni actually this year we are starting a new dark skies um, subject that students can take uh, which I think is really exciting and that doesn't just come from astronomy that comes from astronomy working with ecology working with technology sort of groups to look into all of these problems together because astronomy isn't just us on our computers looking at the stars I think astronomy has loads of links uh, everywhere and I really love to um, especially here in Australia where our space industry is very very new and we're really burgeoning sort of you know got lots of new stuff going on and talking to students at the Victorian Space Science Education Centre with like you're into space maybe you thought you might work at NASA but actually you could work for the Australian Space Agency you could be like um, someone who works on building telescopes and things it's all related to I think our our astronomy research as well um, it's really a new field here in Australia especially not so much in America where you've had a space agency for a long time all of the responses to some extent have been like structural predictions for how the field will change and how we like contribute science to the field and not like the specific science that's going to be done in the next decade well I organized the episode exactly that way so the first four clips are broader and more about the profession than about specific predictions and as you'll see when we move along people do get a little more specific but i liked this clip from stephanie that you were able to get sabrina because she touches on a lot of different topics but obviously jwst is the biggest thing in astronomy for the next 10 years hopefully the 10 years after that as well but if you're not talking about web you're missing something huge right now and then also about amateur astronomers, I mean, maybe we'll move away from the phrase amateur because they're doing professional work and the collaborations that have been done between, you know, professional academics and amateurs in air quotes are, you know, making headlines. There's huge discoveries. I also totally agree with the idea that as we start centralizing our 
scientific missions into these big science agnostic surveys of the night sky with all the data centrally located and then you use it to do whatever kind of scientific analysis you want to do you will see the growth of like privatized telescope companies Mm. to do targeted analysis that we used to potentially do by like submitting observing proposals and maybe that'll get saturated at some point in the future do you think that companies like spacex that are building launch vehicles and Northrop Grumman and Lockheed Martin, which are building JWST and similar telescopes, do you think they'll ever just put up their own telescope and do science with it, or will they sell it back always? I know that Elon Musk is in conversations with astronomers at specifically Lawrence Berkeley National Lab with the plan of, in a couple of years, launching space telescopes biannually. Each one with a different science focus, each one with the potential resolution of Hubble or better. So I definitely see this as something being, well, maybe not prevalent, but it will become increasingly relevant in the next decade. That's so cool. (laughs) Oh, yeah. But what's the incentive structure, Alex? Because who's paying Musk and SpaceX to do that? It's not the National Labs because that comes out of the federal budget. Well, SpaceX in general is kind of an interesting place So what they do is they actually fund themselves. So I imagine, and you probably have a better idea of this, Alex, that they're just going to end up producing more things, selling it to other companies to fund what they're already doing. And that's what they've been doing to kind of fund this whole going to Mars sort of thing. Well, the Mars thing is a little different, but all the launch vehicles they're contracted to build, those are all government contracts. Mm -hmm. I think definitely the technological advancements within the R&D will be mutually beneficial. So if they're striving for something that ostensibly is for the public good, that also helps their private interests. But also think about how much brand recognition you would be able to get by all the discoveries that you could list your own name under. I mean, I would just think that that would enormously benefit a company's revenue streams. It's kind of interesting too, because I don't see it as much in the astronomy side, but on the quantum computing side, you see this all the time where you have a lot of private, and I I mentioned the quantum computing side because my husband does quantum computing stuff, Mm. but there's a lot of private companies that actually do theory and research, basically trying to get these quantum computers working and establishing algorithms but we don't see that yet on the astronomy side it's something that is kind of normal in terms of different fields of research i'm sort of wary though about privatized astronomy or whatever from an sorry to say this but somewhat anti-capitalist perspective i feel like astronomy already has a lot of issues around that and adding in the element of like privatized money it's always good we want more money in astronomy we need it fund Mm -hmm. different people and backgrounds and projects but i don't know i guess it's just given elon's reputation i don't know if y'all are elon stands but i sure am not so i feel like i don't really want him to touch this field (laughs) well let's let's take him off the table and let's just say another hypothetical company that is capable of doing it because i think If it's not him, it'll be somebody else. Mm -hmm. And yeah, he may be particularly problematic as an individual, but I think his company has produced great results. You can't argue with that. There could be a way to do something like that where maybe you're not concerned with that. Maybe if some amateur astronomers instead said, hey, we're going to you know, try and get some funding this way, I think that that would probably be a pretty wholesome company, especially if if they're not for profit. Um, But Mm -hmm. I think that you would probably need to be very wary of a for-profit science company. Well, not to veer us off too much from this, but I think now we should move on to the solar system. And Will, you're going to give us a great prediction along with an astrobite, so I'm excited to hear that. Yes, I have some 10-year predictions, and I'm going to start with one now that I think is... A little crazy, but still more reasonable. And then at the end of the second part of this episode, we'll get to the really crazy ones. So my prediction for 2033 is that we will have found evidence of ancient microscopic life on Mars. 
The astrobite that I'm going to present discussing this is called Where to Find Biosignatures on Mars? A Case for Clays. And it was written by Michael Phillips. And the paper is by Armando Azuabuestos and others, published in Nature Scientific Reports in 2020. This paper discusses what the closest terrestrial analog is for Mars, which is generally believed to be the Atacama Desert. The Atacama Desert is incredibly arid. It's one of the most arid places that isn't Antarctica. It does, though, get occasional rainfalls, which is kind of interesting. So there is occasional water, but other times it's arid. And that actually does sort of resemble Mars because early Mars would have had some water on the surface. We believe Mars had global oceans. And if you go down 30 to 60 centimeters, it really does resemble the closest we can come up with to early Mars. So the authors dug a number of pits, 30 to 60 centimeters deep. And what they find is what's called smectite, which is a type of clay mineral. And they found that it was wet. So in this incredibly dry desert where it hasn't rained in something like three or four years, they found a wet clay under the surface. One of the interesting things about the smectite clay is that it's called hydrous aluminum phyllosilicates. What that means, important to this, is that the water is locked into the chemical structure and these silicates expand when they get wet. So they create little porous caverns within the crystals where you could imagine things could sort of hide and then as they dry out and the water is sort of locked into the crystalline form, those little biosignatures would stay in the crystalline structure as well. So smectites are a great place for microscopic fossils to survive, and they would provide direct evidence of ancient water on Mars and life if they were discovered. And that would be something like three and a half to four and a half billion years ago. If you know anything about our current studies of Mars, you know that there is NASA's Perseverance rover on the surface in addition to the Curiosity rover. But Perseverance is collecting samples and packaging them, leaving them on the surface for Mars sample return, which is the next big Mars mission, to go in 2026, pick up, and then drop back into Earth's atmosphere around 2031 or 32. China has a rover on the surface. The European Space Agency is launching the Rosalind Franklin rover in another year or two. Both Perseverance and Rosalind Franklin landed in clay-rich areas. So really, this could be perfect. If some of those samples that Perseverance has packaged are smectites, we might be able to find that, but it's going to take bringing them back to Earth. So we have to wait until Mars sample return comes home, which is just before 2033. And that's where you get my prediction. It might be bacteria or archaea or some other microscopic organism. It may have come from Earth. It may have been on Mars originally. We'll have to find out. You said that the analog in the Atacama Desert it hadn't rained for three to four years. How good of an analog is that environment really for <laughs> Mars? <laughs> yes, I, I agree. Like three to four years of having no rain doesn't necessarily mean that it's exactly like Mars. This is the best we can get. Obviously, it's imperfect. But Mars three and a half to four and a half billion years ago, based on what we currently believe, did have water in the regions where Perseverance landed. So... It's not ridiculous to imagine that there was weather on Mars and you could find a similar sort of clay-rich area that did have rainfall periodically. The idea is that at some point the water and the biosignatures got locked into these silicate clay formations and then even though it dried out for billions of years, it was locked in the chemical structure and deep enough underground where it couldn't be disturbed. That's the hope. But in truth, it's a long shot. I just love the idea that there's perseverance just packaging little things of rock <laughs> for another one of its, you know, Mars rover buddies, or maybe not Mars rover, but basically for its another little robot buddy to come pick up later. Yeah. This Mars rover is just working diligently for this other other little dude to come and pick it up. I think that's so cute. I hope that there is life in it. Teamwork makes the dream work. Somebody should make a cartoon about it. <laughs> All right. So now it's time to move to planets a little farther from the sun. It's time for exoplanets. Yay. 
Kirsten, want to lead us off with your prediction and astrobite? Okay, so don't hate me, but this astrobite is going to lead to my prediction. Ooh. So you get the prediction after the bite. So this astrobite that I'm going to be talking about is called Earth as an Exoplanet. Just to kind of preface this bite, the major idea here was trying to figure out if we lived on a planet around a different star, would we be able to see Earth? Mm. That kind of brings up this question of how we detect planets in general. The method that we use that produces the most planet detections right now is the transit method, which you may or may not have heard of. To date, we found over 5,000 planets and 80 to 90% of those planets are probably from the transit method. Can you give us a 15-second refresher on how the transit method works? Oh, I was about to. Ah, okay. That's a perfect segue. The concept of it is actually pretty straightforward. We look at a star's brightness as a function of time. If a planet is orbiting that star, when the planet passes in front of the star we'll see this dip in brightness because the planet actually blocks the light from the star. And that's what we detect and that's what we call a planet. However, the important part about the transit method is that the planet's orbit has to be oriented in a way where it actually passes in front of its host star. Just to give an example, if we were looking at the solar system from above where we could see how circular all of the orbits of the planets are, we actually wouldn't be able to detect any sort of planets in this orientation. We would just see a star with nothing transiting it, which, is, which leads straight into this astrobite. So this astrobite is trying to answer this question, how many stars are oriented in such a way that they would have planets that would be in this perfect alignment to be detected using the transit method? So this is really trying to look at if there were a planet on an orbit in similar length to Earth's, would we be able to detect it with the transit method? Well, don't keep us in suspense. Does Earth have life or not? <laughs> <laughs> so what they ended up doing is they actually took a whole a huge sample of stars that were near the solar system, so just nearby stars, and they used a catalog of test data. They were trying to see how many stars basically were surrounding us in the ecliptic plane. The ecliptic plane is basically this imaginary line through space that all of our solar system planets sit on. And so if these planets were in this imaginary plane and it extended and we extended this plane out in all directions, all the stars that were sitting on this plane, they would have planets that were also aligned. What they found is that there are around a thousand stars within a hundred parsecs or 326 light years away from Earth that have this unique alignment so that we would be able to detect these planets using the transit method. And they found a variety of different planet types. So 77% of the stars were these really small M dwarf stars. It's actually pretty promising because most of our planets that we find that are terrestrial are actually around M dwarfs to begin with. So that's pretty cool. But they note at the end of this that stars are constantly moving. So on these larger time scales of hundreds to thousands of millions of years, some of these stars that are there currently will be kind of moving away. And some of the stars that are not there now will be moving in. Help me understand something. Is this saying that we would look for an Earth around those thousand stars, or is that saying those thousand stars would look for our planet and be able to find it? I guess it could go a little bit both ways. So yes, we could look for Earth-like planets around those stars, but it wouldn't be very promising. Mm -hmm. But on the flip side, if they were looking for us, there's a thousand stars that could potentially have planets around them with aliens on them, that could find us. So is this really a SETI paper? <laughs> <laughs> Actually, SETI was brought up in it as well in this bite. But yeah, it's pretty neat. It's a cool concept. Which brings me to my prediction. So what this astrobite addresses is one of the important things that we're looking for in this exoplanet field. And 
This is what we call Eta Earth, an Earth-like planet around a sun-like star. Just talking about the transit method, we know that this isn't something that we can currently do just because the likelihood of being oriented in such a way isn't that great. However, there are other detection methods that are better suited for this. So there's the Roman Space Telescope that's going to be launched, and that will be able to look in this parameter space within, you know, at least before 2033, and actually be able to detect a planet around a sun-like star at an orbit of around 365 days, give or take a few. This would be really promising, and I think that by 2033, people will already be trying to figure out how to do follow-up observations and really find out if we can see any sort of biosignatures. So that's my prediction. Roman, it says it's slated to launch by May 2027 and will have no proprietary data access period. Could you imagine oh an gosh. amateur astronomer finding the first like extraterrestrial signal? So no proprietary means the moment you get your data, it goes out and anyone can use it. That's got to be such a scary thing, though, because you're going to get your data and it's like, oh, my gosh, I found it. And you better publish real (laughs) fast. Otherwise, (laughs) you're going to miss your chance. Yeah, yeah. I don't like that. I don't like gatekeeping data. So I feel like it could be a good thing. It's just like the people that wrote the proposals put on all that time to write the proposal and then they aren't even guaranteed a paper or anything from the data. So, yeah. I like how Hubble and Webb do it where you get one year and then it's fair game. Because if you can't do it in a year, then you're moving kind of slow. I have heard the argument that proprietary periods benefit early career scientists most who need the time to get up to speed on all the analysis tools before they can get scooped by a more senior scientist who is already an expert in reducing the data. Or knows exactly how to publish a letter in a month and knows editors and all that stuff sure especially for something like this if people are scrambling to get this research out i do agree i don't think that it's going to be an early career scientist because the build up to getting those skills you would need to have them already but i also wonder how much it would cause false positive sort of things and then they get published and then retracted because People Mm. are scrambling to be the first one Mm. to detect it because that would be like a bazillion citations. And um, I don't know, maybe the field will have changed and we won't care about citations like Connor said, but I don't know. (laughs) And now it's time to hear a few more predictions from a couple of exoplanet people. And one of them you are all probably super familiar with, our lovely alum, Milena Rice. She is a postdoc right now and soon to be faculty at Yale. Yay, Milena. Okay, let's see what she thinks is going to happen. I think that we're going to really see a push towards demographics of small planets and particularly seeing more about how their compositions and their dynamics and all these different aspects of planetary systems sort of come together. Because I think right now they're... There's a lot of work that is being done in a lot of sort of separate branches of exoplanets. And I'm seeing that now as we're getting more information, it's more possible to actually put together all those pieces. It's sort of like we're working on a puzzle from the outside and we're working inwards. And I like to think that we're actually going to be a lot closer to the center of that puzzle in 2033, where we're going to we're going to know about what a lot of planets are made of with you know, the JWST information and like all of the other really great like supplementary data that's coming in, all the radial velocity surveys that are gonna, at that point, have a pretty long baseline. So we might actually have a lot of earth analogs. So I think that's something a lot of people are really excited about. Uh, The decadal survey definitely made it sound like people are excited about. And I'm really, really delighted to sort of see where that goes and to hopefully be a big part of it and, you know, pursue that within my own research as well as you know just seeing all of the awesome work that lots of people are doing to bring that together so alex i think milena gave you a fairly specific prediction here what do you think 
Yeah, that was very science oriented. I I really like the analogy of the puzzle pieces because it does kind of mm. feel like all of the data that we have so far and that will come in in the next couple of years is like trying to attack the planet formation question from lots of different angles and it would be amazing i mean just from the outside i don't work on exoplanets at all but it would be really incredible <laughs> to see all that synthesized together into one cohesive grand sweeping theory when i was talking to melena as soon as she said that i had to stop myself from being like yes i totally think that that would be the case because I'm already starting to see that now where people are really trying to get demographics for, for these much smaller planets, looking at a whole bunch of different things that we haven't actually been able to see before. And I'm hoping that I'll be able to do some stuff in that field as well, because I think it's a lot of fun and super interesting. I think all of Milena's training as an Astro Soundbites co-host help prepare her to give that one minute summary of the next 10 years. <laughs> That's what she's been training for this whole time. <laughs> so I also spoke with Eric Agel, a professor in astronomy at the University of Washington. In 2033, we're going to be, uh, we'll have enough data from JWST to do very precise transit transmission spectra of Earth-sized planets around small stars like the TRAPPIST-1 system. I'm hoping we'll detect molecular features <laughs> and be able to even say something about biosignatures at that point with multiple uh, features detected uh, around particular you know, individual planets. The other thing I find uh, really exciting that 10 years from now will probably be in the news is that I think there's going to be more um, interstellar objects like Oumuamua and um, Blenikov will be found with the Rubin Observatory. And so I think that'll probably be in the press conferences in WS 10 years from now. Two really coherent and specific predictions. Also very tightly coupled. I feel like they play off of each other nicely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The interstellar objects one is interesting because I went to a talk a few years ago that said we should expect to see at least one a year now. And then we haven't found any in three or four years. So I'm hoping that sooner or later we start getting those because that's a really interesting way of measuring the Milky Way from nearby. Is that estimate counting or not counting the interstellar spaceships that pass through our solar system? <laughs> well, those are undetectable. Therefore, it's hard to count them. <laughs> the next thing we have is the decennial space sound for science and the future. Okay, everybody, close your eyes. Anybody have a guess? My iPhone when I put it outside on a windy day. <laughs> like... Okay. Whoa, how did you get Sabrina's iPhone? <laughs> It sounds sort of like some sort of meteor shower or something. Maybe an instrument on a planet in our solar system? If it's Martian wind, we already did that one. So my guess is that it's not Martian wind. Is it not Martian wind? Well. <laughs> <laughs> I'll tell you this. We have not done it before. Okay. Yeah, it sounds completely like wind to me or... Okay, you're going to hate me, but... Sabrina, you were kind of right. It was wind alex it it is wind on mars but it's different than the wind we did previously <laughs> because uh... this is the detection of a dust devil on mars that's really cool actually huh oh. yeah so a dust devil is sort of like a mini tornado these happen on earth too in the desert but they don't turn into full-blown tornadoes so we'll link to a picture of it it looks really cool it looks like a little tornado on the surface of mars this is sort of like a artist's conception but we actually do have pictures of these oh here's a good one here's one from oh. curiosity crazy they're not particularly powerful because mars has a very thin atmosphere but it sounds like wind so it went right over perseverance about two years ago and percy recorded it so pretty cool does this tell us anything scientific about like the atmosphere of mars or anything or is it just like an oddity that is interesting to listen to there was a whole study published about it. I didn't read it, but I'm sure there was science in there. <laughs> <Is> it, <laughs> how different is it from a tornado? I'm going to look it up and see if I can find an answer for you. 
They are comparable to tornadoes in that both are a weather phenomenon involving a vertically oriented rotating column of wind. Most tornadoes are associated with a larger parent circulation, the mesocyclone on the back of a supercell thunderstorm. Got that? Supercell. It's like Duracell, but super. Nobody say anything. <laughs> okay, I think it's time for our one-sentence summaries. What do you think? I don't want to be a buzzkill, but how do you summarize the future? Oh, it's easy, because you can just make up stuff. So... In 2033, we will have discovered historic microscopic life on Mars via Mars sample return locked into clay. Wow. Let it be known. (laughs) If we want to find an Earth-like planet on an orbit of around 365 days using the transit method, there are about a thousand different nearby stars that may host this Eta Earth or that may host aliens that could see us. And with that, we will conclude episode 69, Astronomy 10 Years into the Future, Part 1. If it sounds like we have more to discuss, we do. In fact, a (laughs) lot more to discuss, so much so that we had to break this up. So we're going to do Part 2 right where we left off. We're going to start with stars. We're going to talk about white dwarfs, black holes, galaxies, cosmology, other things. If you want to read the two astrobytes we talked about today or those two books I mentioned, check out the show notes. You got to stick around for episode 70 if you loved 69, because at the end, we're going to get into even crazier predictions for 2033. Thanks for listening, and don't forget to keep your ears to the cosmos. What's, what's that I see out on the horizon? It's a familiar voice to Astra Soundbites. Someone who we missed. It's none other than Melena Rice. Is she here? No, she's still somewhere in the future. Predicting exoplanets. Is that better, Alex? Well, that's worse. (laughs) (laughs) Hark, a Milena. Yes, AI may replace our advisors. Yes, it's worth it.